Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Bob Stanley to discuss his chronicle of pre-rock and roll pop, Let's Do It. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Bob Stanley, author of Let's Do It, The Birth of Pop Music, A History. Bob, welcome. Nice to be here. And so this is kind of a sequel to your previous book, Yeah, 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 which was a history of pop music from 1955 on the rock and roll era, what we think modern era. This book goes back to 1900, carries up to 1955 and beyond, and kind of connects the two at the end. What was your thinking in dividing it that way? Uh, well, I hadn't intended to, intended to divide it that way. Um, I wrote Yeah, 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 um, and it starts in the in the early 50s because that was when you had the 7-inch single, the, the album, the music press, uh, sort of teenage music press anyway, uh, came into being in Britain anyway, uh, slightly earlier in America. And obviously soon after that came rock and roll, so that for me, it was kind of the beginning of the modern pop era, which ran right away up to the, the end of the century. That was, they, were, they were kind of the formats that um, everybody was used to and uh, uh, the way people accessed what was happening. Um, and uh, it, that was a, there was a, a big split there from what went before. Uh, but of course, when I was writing the early chapters of Yeah, 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 what I hadn't, re- what I hadn't really thought about was there's going to be so much from the past feeding into the early chapters I mean, you just think of like Elvis. Elvis's influences are like, as everyone knows, are like sort of R&B, country and Western, uh, Mario Lanza. Um, it's, it's, it's all stuff that had been there for years before. I mean, he, wrote, he sang Are You Lonesome Tonight? It was a song from the 20s. So, um, 
as I was writing those chapters, I really thought I need I need to find out for myself how how that stuff fits together. And the uh, most straightforward way of doing it really was going back to the beginning of recorded sound, which is basically the beginning of the 20th century. And and it's it's a functional line. And when I was reading Yeah Yeah Yeah, I was very kind of frustrated by the same thing. I was like, you know started in 1955 and i know all that stuff or felt like i do i learned a lot from the book but but i was really aching to to get more of this early stuff and so i was really excited when it came out and you you start the book with a disclaimer and i'm gonna basically read not quite the whole thing but i want to get this out there just because it's essential to the purpose of this to this treatment of this subject it says The book gives an account of the entertainment industry at a time between the American Civil War and the beginning of the civil rights movement. Racism was not only endemic, but overt. Offensive language has been retained in order to offer a true picture of discrimination of the era to erase it could suggest these prejudices never existed. So I agree completely and am not in favor of erasing the ugliness that is our history. So... Thanks for that. Any additional comment on that you want to add? Um, no, I mean, I just, I just felt like I, I had to do that because uh, there was, there was, there was no way around it. I mean, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to emphasize, you know, if I'm writing about someone like Billy Holiday, um, her treatment was in America was just shocking, and when she came to Europe, she wasn't treated the same way. That, I mean, that, that's, that goes right across so many jazz performers, especially that story and that's just that's just the you know the towards the tail end of the book you know it's like that's not including the the stuff uh, at the beginning of the 20th century which was uh like i said much more overt and was, you know like you had like incredibly offensive language in song titles which were hit records so yeah i mean i, I had i had to do that it would have been it, it sort of cowardly and uh um untruthful to uh, to do anything else yeah, and it's just an ugly period of history. Jim Crow was imposed in the 1890s, which was essentially formalizing the apartheid state post-slavery and ending any kind of pretense that we as Americans were going to seek the more equitable treatment of the people that had been enslaved for so long. So, yeah, a lot of ugliness, but, well, I don't know. You can't get past the ugliness exactly, but you have to keep it in, in mind and, and sort of interpret people's and the music based on where they were coming from in history. And this is a book I could easily do a 52 week podcast on. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> Please do. <laughs> well, I'm not talking about that, but it's, it's, you know, you cover a lot of ground. And what I want to do in this hour that we have is kind of cover the bigger narrative um, that, that, that you cover and then dive into a few artists and, and, I'm going to be skipping some of the bigs because I've I've covered them elsewhere on the show or I've got big plans to cover them on the show. So we're going to be talking about Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong and Greg Sinatra maybe as much as you talk about them in the book. But you start out with 1900, the sweet spot where a brand new musical form, Ragtime, linked arms with the nascent pop music industry and launched the 20th century. Elaborate on that a little. Ragtime have been played for nobody knows how long um, prior to um, Scott Joplin publishing Maple Leaf Rag or in, in Sedalia, Missouri in, uh, in the 1890s, um, late 1890s, and that becoming a, a huge sheet music success. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Ragtime kind of is one of those things, a, a bit like blues, where it, it just, it's somewhere in the midst of time, the origins of it, but it was, um, 
Scott Joplin was one of the, one of the people who wanted to formalize it as a, as a, as a, as a black music form. And, um, like I said, it coincided with the, um, mass production of sheet music, which didn't really, didn't really exist till the very end of the 19th century. Um, if you want, if you want to buy like a, a, a piece of music by Stephen Foster when he was writing um, "Oh Susanna" and "Camptown Races," that probably would have been handwritten if you went to your local music shop. So, um, just the fact you had these presses printing out this this music was uh, part of the industrialization of music. Um, recording industry was too primitive to record Scott Joplin playing a piano very clearly at that point. So, early ragtime records tend to be played on banjos or something that would cut cut across on, onto the Shadak 78. Um, so it's, it means it's very, very early days in the music industry, but the, the two things do go hand in hand and ragtime is exported around the world. And uh, it's basically the first, the first time um, there's like a, a truly distinctive American music um, heard outside of America. And the secret sauce of ragtime, as most people know, it was syncopation, which meant that the beat wasn't one, two, three, four. It wasn't straight. Yeah. But the rhythms are, are punkified a little bit, which, and when you hear ragtime now, it's so hard to imagine the impact this stuff had on people. But if you spend some time listening to nothing but operettas and Stephen Foster and the sidewalks of New York and stuff like that, and then you hear ragtime, you can immediately get the feel and the bounce in your face. Yeah. But let's, let's go ahead and hear our first track. And this is... Uh, a man who was once considered the pinnacle of the entertainment industry and is now kind of infamous. This is Al Jolson when the Red Red Robin comes bob-bob-bobbing along. When the Red Red Robin comes bob-bob-bobbing along, along, there'll be no more sobbing when he starts robbing his old sweet song. Wake up, wake up, you sleepy head, get up. Get up, get out of bed, cheer up, cheer up, the sun is red, live, love, laugh and be happy, what if I've been blue, now I'm walking through fields of flowers. Rain may drizzle, but still I live. And that was Al Jolson singing when the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bob in law. Presumably wasn't wearing blackface in the studio, but these days, that's pretty much all he's remembered for. And you grapple with Jolson. And um, actually, you know, you, it's, it's hard to appreciate his music now. I've, I've struggled for years with this. But you point out something that I hadn't thought about before. I, I hadn't seen put so clearly that in the 1920s, and I'm quoting you here, he was the poster boy for displaced persons. For immigrants, he was about stability in a rootless new world that had carelessly wiped their history. Italian, Irish, Slavic, and Jewish households across America wept to his music. For them, unlikely as it may seem now, Jolson's music and his anonymizing mask of makeup had nothing at all to do with plantations. Explain that a little bit. Uh, well, it wasn't just Al Jolson. I mean, um, there was a Scottish singer called Harry Lauder who was hugely famous in music halls in Britain and did this extremely... Um, sort of sentimental and rather hokey Scottish act wearing a kilt on stage. Um, and he, again, he went to America and he, um, he became a huge star. It's like, um, he was hugely successful there, which is again, very hard to imagine. I think, um, the kind of, uh, sort of, kind of really extreme sentimentality of, um, Al Jolson songs and, and to an extent, some Bing Crosby songs as well, um, just did appeal to like, 
anybody who thought they were, they were missing, you know, their homeland, you know, where, where, where they come from, where their parents had come from. Um, and Jolson was just so, such an incredibly extreme performer and with such a loud voice. Um, which again is something that doesn't really come across on record. Obviously, he just sounds like he's shouting, but he was he was a, you know a, a proper entertainer, um, and he was you know the, the loudest and most obvious uh, person to uh, put these sentimental songs across. And um, I mean, it's just to, just talking from to people whose parents or even grandparents were fans of his. That was that was what came across because I really struggle to listen to his records. I don't, you know, irrespective of the, the, the blackface thing, it's like, I just don't find him a pleasant listen. And it's quite hard to understand why he was so big, but he was huge. I mean, he was like, maybe I, I say this in the book, he's maybe the first person you could ever do like a greatest hits of. Um, there's like no one before that. He's like the first person to have more than one signature tune before that. People just like, once they had a, a huge hit, they just hammered that for the rest of their career. And he wasn't content to do that. Um, mainly because he's very needy and wanted attention all the time. But um, yeah, he's kind of he's a, uh, a, a quite a confusing figure. Um, one person who was a, a big fan was Jerry Lee Lewis, who obviously died uh, last week. Um, and I remember a quote from him saying, "There's only ever been two great stylists, Jolson and myself," which is quite quite a quote, and was probably quite a quote even at the time would have seemed quite extreme. I think um, Jimmy Rogers in there too, but yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, oh, right, yeah, that that would make sense. Yeah, maybe there's the three of them. Sorry, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just it, yeah. Unlike Jimmy Rogers, it is it is hard to hard to hear now what was what why he became so huge. But he was he was like without doubt the the, the, the biggest star, um, biggest singing star in the world uh, before Bing Crosby, biggest American star. Yeah, I, I first came across Jolson reading like Marx Brothers' memoir. And I, I read, you know, Mel Pearl's memoirs and George Jessel's memoirs and every single vaudeville performer of his era, Chaplin, too, bowed down to Jolson as hands down the greatest entertainer they'd ever seen in a theater that none of them could match him. And then when W.C. Field says, I could not match this guy on stage, you got to take that seriously because W.C. Yeah. Field, you know, unless you were a kid or a dog, he didn't, you know, respect your performance at all. <laughs> you know, and and then, like you said, Jerry Lee Lewis, but also Rod Stewart and Jackie Wilson and Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin and her father, okay. Franklin, used to sit around, listen to Jolson. The one thing I found is his earlier records, the stuff from the 1910s is a lot easier to appreciate than the later stuff. Um, it swings a little more, especially if you listen to it in comparison with like a playlist of other stuff from that era. He actually... Mm syncopates a lot more than other singers did yeah and yeah you know compared to somebody like john mccormick who's an operatic irish tenor um mm. there's a lot more action there but another guy i wanted to get into before we leave ragtime is irving berlin whose big signature first big signature song was alexander's ragtime band which isn't really mm. even ragtime no it's, explain that whole thing how did that happen um well, Irving Berlin was uh, was just a jobbing songwriter who'd write about any any craze that was uh, that was passing. Um, in when he started out, when he was singing Waiter, um, and Alex Arthur's Ragtime Band is really a song about ragtime. And like you say, it's not really it's got musically got nothing to do with ragtime at all. But it's um, it's 
it's a very engaging, open song. It's like it's a it's a song about music. I mean, I love songs about music if they like make music sound exciting. You know, dub, doubling the excitement, and it's uh, then I'm definitely on board. And it's um, and it's the, the first song I can think of that really does that so, so successfully. Um, but yeah, I mean that that so that that in turn created uh, uh, certainly a craze in Britain. Anyway, there was like a, 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 a review called "Hello Ragtime" came over here as soon as. Alexander's Ragtime Band was a hit, and it kind of started, um, made Ragtime become even more popular. This is like just just prior to the First World War, so uh, that that came to a grinding halt very quickly in Britain. But um, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of like gestation of Ragtime from like the quite uh, stylized um, Scott Joplin playing in at the turn of the century to um, um, Irving Berlin kind of like his uh, extreme commercialization of it um, is. Uh, it's quite a journey and it um, shows how, how relatively slow things were to to move back then or for, for things to get around the world. Yeah, the communication was so much slower. Um, mm. and, and like you say, before Jolson, you know, an entertainer could have one hit song and write it literally for their whole career because people only saw it live where they played the sheet music themselves. And then, yeah. but the next thing that you talk about, and, and this is something I hadn't really thought about or understood, was that before World War One. America was essentially looking to Europe for the cultural lead and whatever music was happening in Europe, immensely impactful in America, like opera was popular music. You know, somebody like Enrico Caruso was one of the biggest selling, um, you know, sold more records than any performer, except yeah. maybe Jolson in this era. So um, mm. I want to cue again, but then when we come back, I want you to explain like what happened. I mean, obviously World War One happened, but explain that whole phenomenon of, you know, Europe, Europe losing its luster. But first, we're going to hear the Boswell sisters singing, We've Got to Put That Sun Back in the Sky. Each bass pedal, good cheer, every place. All you do is keep humming, cause spring is coming, coming to the lane. Sing a little cool little tune. That, 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 We've got to put the sun back in the sky. Teach the bluebirds just how to fly to make an I love you song of each blue song just as the time goes by. Just keep on smiling when trouble's knocking at your door. And that was the Boswell sisters. We've got to put that sun back in the sky, which we will get to shortly. So apologies for the musical non sequitur. But tell us why, why, what happened exactly that European culture just fell off and lost the luster both in Europe and in the state. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I hadn't realized quite how dominant it was in America until I started researching the book, but um, it, it feels like American popular song didn't have much, that much confidence in itself at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, things that, you know, the big shows were nearly always imported from um, um, London or Vienna or Paris. Um, and uh, that kind of, uh, I mean, you know, Jerome Kern, for instance, Jerome Kern wanted to become a popular songwriter. He came to England to like um, start hang around the music halls and pick up some inspiration and met a promoter when he was over here who, who'd come over from America and Jerome Kern pretended to be English to get some, uh, to get work in New York, um, which is, which is crazy. He married an English woman as well. So that probably, probably helps. He sort of fakes being English. And only let the cat out of the bag when they got back to America. Um, 
but yeah, it was uh, the, the, the first world war um, was kind of the, the the end of it in Britain, but um, it was um, it was kind of music hall was certainly uh, falling from popularity in Britain for various reasons. There was like uh, there's a lot of industrial action; people weren't performing, and um, but the first world war just led to loads of um, um, patriotic songs being being hits in Britain, which um, which obviously wouldn't have translated into America when America wasn't wasn't at war. Um, and the, the, I think the, the four the four year kind of um, pause button for for popular music in Europe coincided with the rise of uh, the beginnings of jazz in America. And uh, from 1917 onwards, America was absolutely uh, bossing popular music. Yeah, and, and that's something we just kind of take for granted, having both you know grown up in the 20th century. I think that's kind of ending now we're seeing you know south korean music latin american music african music kind of step up and take uh, their place at, at the forefront of the stage as, as american music is still very dominant but declining um so it was yeah it was very crystallizing for my thinking when you pointed that out that ah world war one was bad <laughs> took the shot <laughs> european culture and african-american culture was there waiting and ready just mm. To explode, and so tell us a little bit about the jazz age. Um, you mentioned a guy, and we I've talked to him about crooners many times, and this is what Jolson wasn't. Jolson belted, sang really loud, so he worked with acoustic recording. He worked great in theaters, but once we had electric recording around 1925, these quieter singers, these crooners, came along. I've done shows on Bing Crosby, Rudy Valley, Planet D1, and Russ Colombo. One guy you brought up was a Brit. Whispering Jack Smith. Tell us about him and his story. What made him whisper? Um, Whispering Jack Smith apparently whispered because um, he'd been um, caught in a mustard gas attack in the First World War, and it um, made his voice softer and hoarser. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually true, um, but uh, he he did the original original hit version, as far as I know, any of... um, me and my shadow, which um, I was thinking of being Frank Sinatra with Sammy Davis, but um, uh, Whispering Jack Smith's was uh, the twenties hit version of that. Um, yeah, I mean the the, 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 cro- the crooning era is 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 again fascinating. And I, I there was um, we were talking about um, I had to put the uh, disclaimer at the front of the book about race, but um, I was also constantly aware that there might be women behind certain things that weren't getting the credit either. And uh, in this case, there was a single Vaughan Delith, who, again, I, I hadn't come across till I started researching the book. And she is definitely the first crooner. I mean, she's the first successful crooner. She had her own radio show. Um, and she's in the, right at the beginning of the microphone um, age, so like sort of 24, 25, I think, or maybe slightly earlier. Um, but yeah, she, she, she's, she's incredible too. It's, um, it was... Uh, so by the time Bing Crosby comes along in like sort of like 29, um, 2930, when he becomes a solo performer, um, crooners have been already been around for quite a while. And one thing that I thought was pretty valuable in this book, and there's a few other books, um, Elijah Wald's work, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll is another one that comes to mind. Hmm. You guys are bringing a pretty important corrective because most of the musical history of this era has been written by jazz scholars who have a particular they're looking for something they're looking for improvisation they're looking for authenticity 
But that's not what was yeah. popular then when they called it the Jazz Age. I mean, Paul Whiteman was the king of jazz, as crazy as that sounds. How quick yeah. his alliance with George Gershwin and how did he lay claim to that title? Um, I don't, I mean, Paul Whiteman, Elijah Wall points this out as well in his book. I, I don't think Paul Whiteman ever called himself the king of jazz. He just happened to be uh, involved in a movie that was like called The King of Jazz. And I can't think it was like, he might, he might have run with it afterwards because the film was a hit, but um, I don't think he'd have ever done that. He, um, uh, rather like Scott Joplin did with Ragtime, he, he, he liked the idea of formalizing early jazz and, um, and uh, um, asked George Gershwin to write, to write a piece for this um uh, formal jazz concert he was putting on that was like going to be you know showing showing the world that jazz could grow up and uh, not be so ramshackle and um, and Gershwin wrote Rhapsody in Blue for that so uh, that was debuted at a, a Paul Whiteman event um, which is weird which is not nothing you know it's, I think uh, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, music history of Paul Whiteman is just regarded as, as a joke and it's um he was hugely popular in uh, Whispering, talking of Whispering Jack Smith. His, his big initial hit was called Whispering. Uh, and it was, it was huge. It was a million seller. Um, and he carried on selling uh, tens of hundreds of thousands of records right through the 20s. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not jazz as, uh, as you might, might think of it now. But I mean, um, jazz as we might think of it now tends to be post-war anyway. I think this, this whole era and the 20s jazz age um, it's sort of under discussed now, so that was it was it was really it was really exciting for me to like go through go through that period and try and make sense of it in, in my head. Obviously, while I was writing the book. Yeah, and and I found the listening around that quite entertaining. People like Helen Kane, um, mm. the crooners, and others, uh, just really fascinating to me. And and I think trying to understand the era as people who lived it saw it rather than the yeah, way that was that was absolutely what I wanted to do with the book, really. That was kind of my intention was uh, to, um, to to get across what it would have felt like to live to live, to be you know to be alive at the time and um, what you'd have been doing socially and how you, how you'd have been like um, hearing music, um, which uh, again is one of the reasons that um, for the most part um, black music would have been shunted into a corner and what you'd have heard on the radio would have been um, almost entirely white. Yeah, even the original Dixieland Jazz Band were all white. They put out the first uh, jazz record in 1917. And there had been black performers who'd had the chance to record, but uh, opted not to. But most of it was systemic racism. And so let's take a quick sponsor break. When we come back, we'll finally get to the Boswell system. So I, I played a Boswell sister song earlier, and this is another group that I'd come across reading about Bing Crosby and others, but your book really helped me get the impact to the bottom. There's one thing I want to make clear. You talk about Duke Ellington at length. Louis Armstrong gets a whole chapter. I'm kind of emphasizing some white performers because I'm less familiar with them than I am with those guys, but I don't want to give listeners the idea that you skipped over or didn't pay due respect (laughs) to these titans of African-American music. But the Boswell sisters were kind of the first white girls who could sing black. Um, yeah, that's, that's one way of putting it. But I mean, they, they were from New Orleans, which was um, probably the main reason that they, uh, they 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 sounded like, you know, for want of a better word, authentic jazz singers. Um, and their whole thing was basically to, to sing, to use their voices as, as jazz instruments. I mean, um, 
re- reading jazz histories, people tie themselves in knots about whether uh, vocal jazz is even a thing because jazz should be played on an instrument. But it's like the Boswell sisters have very much, uh, you know, finished the argument because they they are performing as as, as jazz musicians and but they're using their voices. Um, they're they're incredibly entertaining. They're really, you know, it's, it's impossible not to uh, improve your mood by listening to a Boswell sisters record. They're also without doubt um the main influence on the andrews sisters who became much more famous um in in the in the 40s um late 30s and 40s but uh, and, and the andrews sisters would be the first people to say that they base their sound on the boswells um maybe the one of the reasons they're not so well known now is because their careers uh were cut short because two of the three sisters got married and at that at that point in history that was it. You stopped singing, you stopped performing, you were now a wife. Um, and Connie Boswell went solo. She was the only one who carried on with her career. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, they are proper proper jazz musicians. And uh, yeah. the, the players they played with were, were amazing too. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, Venuti and uh, Eddie Lang are on the... Mm. Yeah, that I played that that played frequently with Bing Crosby and others, and it, it pained me to have to cut that song down to thirty seconds because there are so many sweet hooks, transitions in that song, and yeah, their catalog is is deep with that stuff. So thank you for really pointing to me at, at the Oswald sisters. And the next guy I want to talk about is Glenn Miller because he's somebody you devote a whole chapter to, and he's everything I've ever read about Glenn Miller has trashed him as not jazz. There's no improvisation, et cetera, et cetera. But I've always dug Glenn Miller when I heard it, and you still hear Glenn Miller a lot. Tell us about your appreciation for Glenn Miller and why you think we should appreciate him more. Um, well, I think he's. Let me think. He's one first. Well, there's a bunch of reasons. One of which, one of which is he. You know, if you watch the Glenn Miller story with James Stewart, the only thing that gets mentioned because his character is so blank um, is that he's got a sound in his head and he wants to get it across, and that that was true. I mean, it's like he he had he he. Um, his sound was very distinctive, uh, and that wasn't easy. You know, if you've got a big band, it's like to to switch. Um, um, he's more clarinets, um, I think, than uh, than most of the, most of the big bands. Um, but yeah, you're right. He gets he gets short shrift from jazz histories because or just completely ignored because basically there's very few solos in his work. Um, he was, but he was more about he's more about riffs. You think of in the mood. It's incredibly insistent, repetitive. Um, and for that reason, sounds a lot more modern than um, most Benny Goodman records, I'd say, um, or whoever, Fletcher Henderson records, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's also kind of, uh, I think of him being a, like a very modern figure in that, you know, he, he disappeared, he died. Uh, he's, so he's like, his career is like set in stone, like frozen in a moment, which is, um, I don't know, you think of something like... Um, Kurt Cobain or you know, Ian Curtis or someone that's more recent examples of that. Um, so it's easy to see why, again, his um, his uh, his music was appreciated for decades afterwards because it was like it just felt like his, his loss was um, when when he was at the peak of his fame was uh, was kind of impossible for people to get their heads around really. So yeah, he's um, he's a fan, he's a fascinating figure I think, and and again, there's so many so many songs, um, Chattanooga Choo um Moonlight Serenade, um, in the mood, all instantly recognisable even now. Little Brown Jug, which was a yeah, yeah, song that, that 
pretty popular as your range. But let's go ahead and hear a little Glenn Miller. This was a song I wasn't familiar with until you pointed me to it. This is Mission to Moscow. was Glenn Miller's wartime song, Mission to Moscow, which kind of reminds me of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo by Per Ubu, of all things. But it's, the same <laughs> it's not bombing Moscow, though. At the time, uh, Moscow and the West were allies, and so this was about sending a relief mission to Moscow. But we're short on time, so I want to jump ahead again and, and talk about another massive figure that you devote a whole chapter to, and this unusual alliance he had. I'm talking about Nat King Cole, and Eden Abes and their song Nature Boy. Tell us where Nat mm. King Cole was in his career. Who on earth was this Eden Abes character, and how did they come together to produce this mega hit in the world? Well, Nat King Cole at this point was um, um, still mostly famous as, as, as a pianist um, with the Nat Cole trio. He was just starting his um, solo singing career um, and was, was performing in Los Angeles and this guy, Eden Arbez, who um, was, was basically a proto hippie. He lived, he lived under one of the letters on the Hollywood sign. Uh, he didn't even live in a house. And uh, he went to see Nat King Cole because uh, he'd written this song that he wanted him to perform. And he went backstage, hung around until someone took notice of him and said, I've got this song I want to give to Mr. Cole. And uh, I mean, yeah, what, what are the chances of this guy looked like a, a wild beatnik and uh, they did they did take the tape off him and Nat King Cole did listen to it uh, and it was Nature Boy so it became one of the most covered songs in the history of music it's an unbelievably good song um, and they, they put it out initially as a B-side and I think DJs flipped it over it's one of the first examples of that uh, where a B-side becomes a hit and it was a number one hit but um, yeah I mean Eden Arbez is um, his his he never really wrote another hit record. He made made one album called Eden's Island, um, but uh, that's it's, yeah one of my favourite stories. They didn't know where to send the ro- royalties either because uh, obviously they didn't have an address. Um, they just knew he lived uh, in the wild somewhere. Uh, it took them a while to track him down. Rumor was he was living behind the Hollywood Land sign. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, quite an alliance, and it kicked off Nat Cole's career, who becomes. Um, he did become the first African-American pop superstar. I mean, you had Burt Williams in the teens and 20s, who was the first Broadway star, uh, African-American Broadway star, but he died pretty early and didn't really translate into the recorded era. We don't hear much about him now. I mean, a black man who performed blackface, so really complicated there. But Nat King Cole is kind of the first black performer to get a, a shot at the pop big time. And even had a TV show that was massively successful, but couldn't find sponsors because advertisers were too scared of racists to back him. So a key figure and kind of progress, although stunted still. We wouldn't see it. I don't think you see African-American music at its due in America until Michael Jackson becomes the superstar. You would always have a white superstar who kind of loomed over. I mean, frankly, the more talented, uh, often more talented uh, black performer. Um, 
you know, not to diss Bing Crosby or anything, who's absolutely great, but Louis Armstrong was right there, you know? <laughs> and so yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, uh, uh, still hurts to read about Nat King Cole and what he suffered, but it's inspiring to read about his triumphs. And this is also a period yeah. in the narrative when the great American songbook kind of sputters to an end. And, and one thing that you pointed out that I didn't understand before this was it wasn't considered the great American songbook when it was being written. And of course, I'm talking about the songs of Jerome Kern and George Gershwin we've mentioned, but also Cole Porter and, you know, the soundtrack of the Wizard of Oz and so many classic songs. But it wasn't until Artie Shaw and Frank Sinatra and, and, and Peggy Lee sort of and other people codified this and started going back to these old songs and they became standards. Ella Fitzgerald was another big one uh, doing yeah. that. And, but it hits this period in the early 50s when there's more songs like Nature Boy and Hank Williams is suddenly you know, writing songs for Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra can yeah. buy a hit. What happened to the Great American Songbook in the early 50s? Um, that's a good question. I think um, there's, it's partly maybe down to um, songwriters, who, who, the better songwriters just getting older. So, I mean, like Irving Berlin's... Um, writing career is huge up to the mid fifties and suddenly just like falls off a cliff. He just loses, uh, um, loses his muse, I suppose. Um, and, um, even Cole Porter, he wasn't really having, he, he was writing sort of flop musicals in the late forties, which, uh, is again, hard, hard to understand, but it's, um, I think, uh, I think it's to do probably to do with, um, in the second world war, we had the, um, Musicians Union strike, and then you had the um, the dispute with, with ASCAP, where uh, uh, the ASCAP published this, all the songbook writers, um, and the ASCAP asked for too much money, and radio said, "Well, we're not going to play your songs anymore. We're going to like play blues songs, country songs, songs from other countries, uh, Latin songs, you know." And, and those became those became hits, and that kind of watered down the monopoly that the songbook writers had or not not really a monopoly but i mean like that was the sound of america in the 30s and 40s i think i would say um say to, to my ears and um during the second world war that that just uh when when the, when the dispute and the musician strike happened you had uh things changed and you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle it was um but it also meant that you know like hank williams became a really successful songwriter at the beginning of the 50s as, as you said and tony bennett had a huge number one hit with Cold Cold Heart, which of course you never hear now. You hear Hank Williams' version, but I think Tony Bennett's version was number one for 11 weeks, I think. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I did a whole episode on kind of the Mitch Miller era. He was the big producer in A&R. Mm. Records in this period, you know, Frank Sinatra's Bet Noir, but kind of the first yeah. producer who made records as records, and along with Les Paul, you know, yeah. creating these sound sculptures with sound effects. So enormously important figure, and I'm fascinated with that era. I think I think PTSD after World War II had a big part in it too. That these comforting, simple songs like "Goodnight Irene," yeah. uh, you know, "Cold Cold Heart" were very soothing, and "Nature Boy" also very calming. Yeah. These veterans, you know, coming back from these horrific atrocities that they saw and engaged in in World War II. You have a wonderful chapter on Peggy Lee. I don't have time to talk about it, but I just want to mention that. And thank you for the the guide to Peggy Lee's music, because she's somebody I'd totally overlooked. And what a catalog. It, it's comparable with Sinatra's 50s work. I was blown away. So thanks for pointing that out. But I want to, before we wrap, I want to get to this 
rapprochement between the old pop and the new rock and soul that happened in the 1970s. Talk about that kind of in the in the coda, Bette Midler and Barry Manilow are figures you bring up. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, why do we not see this big line between rock and pop that we saw in the 60s, 50s, 60s? And um, well, I think it was, um, it was only ever a, a false wall between the two things. It was just a, a rock and roll has created this generation gap. And uh, I, try and, I try and put across in the book, if you were like listening to, um, I don't know, Anita O'Day records or uh, Frank Sinatra records, um, so many amazing jazz singers coming through in, in, in the, in the mid fifties. And then you heard, I don't know, book of love by the monotones, which I absolutely love, but just really sounds like it's recorded in a shed. Um, it would have just sounded like a, a horrible noise and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been able to understand what on earth people saw in it, but that was, it wasn't for you. It was for, it was for teenagers. And that was, that was just something that kind of, I mean, it happened with early jazz to an extent as well, but I mean, you also had Stravinsky saying he loved early jazz um, and there was, I don't think there was any modern classical composers sticking up for, I don't know, Little Nancy and the Imperials or whoever. Um, but it, so it's kind, it was kind of a false wall, really, because the, the two worlds wanted to stay apart from each other. It suited them both. Uh, and in the 60s, obviously, you had people coming through like Barbara Streisand, who were huge stars, but part of this older world, uh, or Jack Jones, um, who had nothing to do with rock and roll or rock music. Um, and likewise with the Laurel Cannon performers, Canyon performers, um, uh, and the way they were incredibly harsh to Jimmy Webb, who was having songs sung by Frank Sinatra, the divide was, you know, c- complete. Um, so yeah, this the kind of rapprochement um, to, that you, you mentioned. I think, uh, I think Harry Nilsson is maybe the first person to do an album of standards uh, with with Gordon Jenkins doing the arrangements, who worked with um, uh, Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole. Yeah, and and, um, and even Buddy Holly towards the end of his life. Gordon Jenkins did. Yeah, he was. He was. I didn't advising, know that. He was advising Buddy Holly. They never got to do albums together, but that's uh, the late Ed Ward that I did a bunch of episodes with. He was. He would kind of dismiss the what ifs about Buddy Holly by saying, "Oh, he was just going to go work with Gordon Jenkins." <laughs> but <laughs> I think there was more promise there uh, than to be dismissed. But anyway, that was. Um, Gordon Jenkins reference. One thing that I came across actually reading a Bee Gees book and doing a Bee Gees episode was the album that Barry Gibb produced for Barbara Streisand, Guilty. Mm. That's the it's, moment. And that's where this whole, you know, Whitney used to Mariah Carey kind of pop tradition to me comes from is this alliance of, say, Barry Gibb, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, Lionel Richie, you know, create this new era of pop that comes out of the rock and soul world, but doesn't is not in conflict with the old world such that Barbara Streisand could do it. Yeah, that's 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 a really that's a really good point. I mean, I think the, the Guilty album is is incredible. Um, my next book is actually on the Bee Gees, funnily enough. Oh. Um, but um, yeah, that, I mean, that's really by, by that point, I think that the, the, the whole the whole thing's complete. And um, uh, I mean, you got to think of the Bee Gees started out as child performance singing Alexander's ragtime band. So they absolutely knew uh, the pre-rock world. Um, so that, that, yeah, that's, uh, I don't think they'd have done it consciously, but they certainly they thought Barbara Streisand was an incredibly important figure. Um, and one of the biggest stars in the world and wouldn't, and were not sniffy about working with her at all, which, um, 
I don't know. Other people might have been, I suppose. Um, yeah, but that's kind of that's that's a really good point. I mean, that's it's uh, it, it it definitely feels like an album that looks looks to the future, um, and um, I think Bert Bacharach as well. I'd guess would, would yeah. be uh, somebody who. Um, does something similar a little earlier, but um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I like the idea of the guilty album being this uh, milestone. <laughs> I'll go yeah. along with that. I think the thing with Bacharach is jazz musicians never picked up his material, and I once asked Ted Joya, the great jazz scholar, about that, and he was like, "Well, it's too hard," <laughs> which <laughs> blew my mind because my my thinking of you know I think of jazz musicians as John Coltrane and Louis Armstrong, but they're not all that good. And when they're used to doing the same chord changes and you throw them a Burt Bacharach with these bizarre time signatures, weird chord changes, you know, it, it just, um, that was one factor. I don't think that's, uh, but yeah, Burt Bacharach is a key one. I want to cue our last song and, and we already talked about it, but I think people need to hear it if they haven't. This is the Nat King Cole trio doing Eden Abbas's Nature Boy. Is just And be loved in And that was Nat King Cole and his trio doing Nature Boy by Abbas. And one thing that struck me about listening to that record, which I'd heard before but never really paid that much attention to, is it's a jazz trio record. There's plenty of piano and guitar in there, solo in a way, and swinging and you know, just playing brilliantly. So it's this legit jazz song, but also this new kind of pop that's not the great American song. So yeah, absolutely pivotal song, and I'm glad you brought that up. Anything... Um, and there's so much we didn't cover that I'd love to talk about at length. But any any other points that you want to bring up about the book for people who are interested that we? Um, well, I don't know. It's, I mean, I kind of wanted to write it so it was, it was an entertaining read. I mean, almost all the research I did, or um, I was getting I was getting information from like academic books because, um, or, or from particular particular histories, songbook histories, jazz histories blues histories um and i just wanted to read like um like a story really like like uh like a, 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 an entertainment because because the music the music was basically the music i'm writing about is was purely seen as entertainment there was like no kind of uh um wasn't a huge amount of dark soul searching in this music it was purely seen as entertainment whether it was a depression or wherever so that's kind of how i wanted to make the book read um hopefully that's come across and I think you did. I, I really tore through it for a big, fat, juicy volume. I, I really dug it. And um, my guest has been Bob Stanley. The book is Let's Do It, The Birth of Pop Music, A History. Bob, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hope to have you back. Thank you. Cheers. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes A.R. Shaw to discuss his book, Trap History, Atlanta Culture and the Global Impact of Trap Music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 